Morning, brothers and sisters. Turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 8. We're going to be reading verses 26 through 30. You can find it in in your pew Bibles on page 944. Romans 8, verse 26 through 30. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God called Abraham out of his pagan culture and he made a covenant with him. He promised three main things to Abraham. The nations of the earth would be blessed through him. He would be fruitful with a multitude of offspring, and his offspring would have land. Abraham eventually fathered Isaac. Isaac fathered Jacob, and then Jacob fathered Joseph. Now, Jacob had other children too, other sons who were jealous of Joseph, and so they sold Joseph into slavery. Joseph was taken to Egypt, and after years of suffering, and years of living in prison, he rose in rank to become the second most powerful authority over all of Egypt. He had interpreted the Pharaoh's dream and he helped Egypt save up food for coming years of famine. And during that famine, Joseph's brothers came to Egypt to buy food. And eventually, they they learned that the man that they were asking for this food from was that same brother they, they sold into slavery. And they were worried. They were worried that he was gonna kill them. But he said, do not fear. Am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. So note how Joseph's brother's evil actions did not disrupt God's good purposes. Joseph and all of his brothers settled then in the land of Egypt, and they grew in number over many generations. They would become known as the people of Israel. Israel was another name that God had given to their father Jacob. And so they're growing now in population within Egypt, and this new Pharaoh gets nervous. These people are growing, and he's a little concerned that they're going to overtake his government. So he put them into slavery. And their lives were difficult and bitter, consumed with harsh labor. The Pharaoh even tried to have all of the firstborn males of the Israelites killed because he was trying to limit their population and their growth. But eventually, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, 
and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God redeemed Israel from their slavery and delivered them into a land of rest, a land that flowed with milk and with honey. Note how God saw and knew the suffering of his people. Note how he heard the groans of his people. Note, too, how his promises to deliver his people to a land flowing with milk and honey did not fail. Old Testament narratives are absolutely fundamental to be able to understand the book of Romans. Romans is a logical book. It's filled with logical arguments. Sometimes it can be a little bit difficult to understand the train of thought that Paul is uh, laying out for us. So Paul alludes to the Old Testament narratives over and over again as illustrations of the doctrine that he is establishing, the doctrine that Paul is affirming. Man's desire to do evil will not defeat God's desire for good to come about. He knows the suffering of his people, and his good purposes do not fail. Keep these things in mind that we've learned from Old Testament narratives. Keep these concepts in mind as we dig into Romans 8, verses 26 through 30 today. I submit that the big idea of this passage is that Christians should rest assured that God's good purposes will be accomplished in their lives. Christians should rest assured that God's good purposes will be accomplished for their lives. And just to give you an idea of where we're headed this morning, here are our three points. First, the Holy Spirit prays God's will for us, verses 26 and 27. Second, God's will prevails. See this in verse 28. And then lastly, those whom the Father foreknew are guaranteed to become like Jesus in verses 29 and 30. May the Holy Spirit help us as we dig into his word. First, the Holy Spirit prays God's will for us. Let me read that into our hearing just one more time. Verses 26 through 27 say this. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know how to pray or what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. When trials come, we get disoriented. A fog sort of settles into our hearts settles into our minds, we get tossed around on the waves, it's hard to know which way is up, and in our weakness, it can be hard even to know what to pray for, or even how we ought to pray. You can't even figure out how to articulate what a positive outcome might be based on what we're experiencing right now. But the triune God and his sovereign goodness does not leave us in our weakness. The Holy Spirit who dwells in us intercedes for us. Look at, your, look at your Bible in Romans chapter 8. Hopefully you have it there opened in front of you. We read just before this uh, in verse 16 that the Holy Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are indeed adopted children of God. And we can cry out to him then as our dear Heavenly Father who sees and cares for us and hears how we groan inwardly 
as we await for Jesus to return. Verse 23 is that reference. We are waiting for Jesus to return and bring us to the final stage of redemption, our glorification. So likewise, in verse 26, the Holy Spirit helps us to take hold of God's promises. Even though we don't understand what God's will is, we do know that God is our Father and that he promises all things will work out for the good. We can trust his good character. God has promised redemption even in the midst of suffering and affliction and in distress. And the Holy Spirit knows even better than we do. We are not omniscient. The Holy Spirit is. And so the Spirit groans for us on our behalf with words that can't be verbally expressed. Verse 27 there as well, it says, He who searches hearts, that is specifically referring to the Father, The Father knows what the Holy Spirit is praying for us because the Spirit and the Father share one will. They desire the same thing. The unity of purpose within the persons of the Trinity means that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, steps up and brings our prayers into conformity with God's will. So what happens is the Spirit connects our hearts with the Father's will, the Son's will, the Spirit's will. Even when we don't know what to say, in the midst of our tribulation, God sees and God knows and he groans for us so that when sorrows like sea billows roll, he has taught us to say it is well with our soul. So my question is, when you are struck with trials, suffering, anxiety, What is your response? When these things happen to you, what is your response? We are designed to seek peace. So we inevitably are trying to find peace somewhere. We will naturally pursue that peace anywhere we might think it could be found. Sometimes we try to reason our way to peace. We try to rationalize what's happened and what's going on right now. So if we can boil down what steps led me to this particular state of suffering that I'm in right now or just anxiety, Well, maybe then I can be able to avoid it again in the future. I can rationalize this away. Unfortunately, reality does not submit to our reasoning. We are not omniscient. That is to say, we don't know everything. We are not omnipotent, which is to say that we cannot bend reality to our wills. So even though there's wisdom in sort of reflecting and thinking about the motives of our heart, analyzing our choices and options... It does not, it cannot bring us the lasting peace that we desire, that we need, that we want. Or we might try to distract ourselves, either through getting out and meeting with people, or maybe just mindlessly scrolling through our phones, or with food, or with alcohol, or with anything that might numb the pain, or at least keep us from having to dwell on the pain. But the truth is that facing... And expressing our hopes and fears to God is a means through which we are able to gain some true measure of relief and of peace. Our groanings relieve our griefs. That's one of the important lessons that we learn often from the language of the Psalms. We are instructed to bring our groanings before the Lord. We know this too, though, even in other settings. In the gym, if you try to lift heavy weights, you groan. 
because for some reason, it seems to help you lift heavy burdens. But you can't groan too loud, especially if those grunts are like too deep for words, because they will kick you out. I don't know that from experience. Only heard about it. I should just point out that when it says groanings are too deep for words, that doesn't mean speaking in tongues. This isn't a reference to a private prayer language. The groanings here connects us back to verse 23. It's a longing for the final redemption or consummation, another word for it, of all things. So the fact that the Spirit intercedes for us should be of great comfort to us. Being someone who prays publicly most Sundays, I know the temptation of trying to construct a prayer as if the audience, the primary audience, is actually the congregation rather than God. Jesus reminds us, of course, of the danger of praying publicly, trying to showboat, trying to use empty words that are not actually connected with our heart. Maybe you've heard people who slip into Victorian English when they start to pray, as if God only spoke King James English. Maybe your concern is that you don't like praying out loud because you think, I'm afraid that other people are going to listen to my prayer and think that I don't have the right words to say. Listen to what this passage is saying. Spend time in communion with God by his Holy Spirit and press into him. Don't be so concerned about saying the exact right words. There's not a magic formula. That's not the point of prayer. Your biggest concern shouldn't be that you know exactly what to say or how to say it, but that you bring your longings and your concerns to him as a father. When you don't know what to pray, remember that you can bring your groaning to God, not your grumbling, but your groaning. And remember that God is good. The comforting ministry of the Holy Spirit in our prayer is that he aligns our prayers with God's will. And that is good news because God's will prevails. God's will prevails. Our second point, God's will prevails. Verse 28 If you don't have a memory verse for this week, I'll suggest verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. It's good that the Spirit intercedes for us according to God's will because God is good and God's will always prevails. It's verse 28. Uh, Verse 28 says that there are those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. This is speaking of Christians who are united by faith with Christ. Two ways of speaking about the same group. For this people, all things work together for good. Now, because we don't know what God's hidden will is, we don't have a full knowledge of what God is doing in any given moment in our lives. We don't know what he has planned for us. So we don't really know what is good for us. Our limited perspective keeps us from knowing what God's good plans are for us. And this is why we need the Spirit to intercede for us according to the will of God. We are so often focused on the short term, especially in our youth. We become impatient. We want all the pleasures that life has to offer, and we want it now, and we don't want it ever interrupted So when we think of things working out for our good, we might think of the American dream as being that good. Health, wealth, happiness in life, relationships, 
all around us flourishing infinitely and indefinitely in the here and now. No more anxiety or loss in our lives. This is what is sometimes assumed or even taught in this particular verse. But that is just too short of a perspective for what Paul has been arguing for. Prosperity in this life, as pleasurable as it may be, pales in comparison to the eternal good that lies before those who love God. No matter how much it looks like you're winning in this life, you know that creation is still groaning. You yourself are still groaning. This is one of the messages of the whole book of Ecclesiastes, that we need to reorient our desires towards something greater than the light and momentary pleasures of this life, toward the presence of God, where there is fullness of joy, where there is pleasure forevermore. So when you read good here, don't think, oh, I know exactly what would be good, so God must be promising me that. We cannot accuse God of failing to fulfill promises that we have made on his behalf. It's not how any of this works. We don't know what his good is, but we can trust his good character. It's been well said that in any given moment, God is doing 10,000 things in your life, and you might be well aware of three of them. We are not good at interpreting God's hidden will. We're just not. We don't judge God by our limited perspective. We trust him for his grace. We won't always understand what God's doing in our lives. But here's what this verse is saying. We can trust that God is sovereign and that he's good. God is sovereign. This is what it means to say that God's will prevails. All things work together for good. And I suggest that the only way that this is possible, the only way that this could be true is if God's will prevails, ultimately. You and I, of course, have made plans. We have made intentions. We have purposes for our own lives. But I think you'll know by experience that there is often a gap between our knowledge of our plans and the success of said plans. Our greatest dreams can be frustrated. What we desire to see happen doesn't always happen. That is not true of God. There is no hint that God's plans are ever frustrated. Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. This is Ephesians chapter 1. So let me just make two clarifying statements. First, God's sovereignty does not take away your agency as a person. He does not coerce anyone to do what they do. You still can and must, in fact, make meaningful choices for yourself in your life. For example, Paul has just recently told us to put to death the deeds of the flesh. He's going to go on in chapter 12 to instruct us to present our bodies as living sacrifices. So, so when you think of God's sovereignty, invincible as it is, don't think of it as meaning that your actions and your decisions are meaningless. It's not the way it is. Second, God's sovereignty does not make him the author of evil. God's sovereignty does not make him the author of evil. God is light 
and in him is no darkness at all. This is 1 John 1, 5. God created everything very good. To sin, evil, is to act against God's law. God's law is a reflection of his nature. It is impossible for God to act out of his nature. So it is impossible for God to sin. It is impossible for God to be the author of evil. So if we're looking, if we're trying to figure out what the cause of evil is, we need to look at the corrupted nature of humanity that follows Adam, not the hidden will of God. God is never surprised by evil, but he is not its author. Evil does not escape his sovereignty. God is sovereign over evil, and God is good. These truths are not contradictory. They must be held together. This is really just another way of stating what we've already heard this morning, isn't it? In the story of Joseph. What his brothers meant for evil against Joseph, God meant for good for Joseph and for the countless others who were kept alive by his planning for that coming famine. Their evil actions did not disrupt God's good purposes. He works all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. All things includes a lot, doesn't it? One might say it's all-inclusive. I hope this doesn't hit you as a fluffy little verse that doesn't really actually connect with how miserable life can be. The Apostle Paul who wrote this was well acquainted with suffering, with sorrow, with imprisonment, with relational strife, with being deserted, with injury, with violence, with shipwreck. He even stood by before his conversion approvingly and witnessed the stoning of Stephen, a disciple of Christ. If we were to pass a microphone around in here this morning and you had the strength and the time to tell some of the amazing stories of misery that you have endured, we would probably all be pretty stunned. This verse in no way minimizes or trivializes misery or evil. God takes evil very seriously. And if you're confused about that at all, or you don't trust it, look to the cross. Romans 3 is making this point for us very clear. God is just. His just wrath will be poured out against evil. His just wrath against sin and evil was poured out on Christ so that all that remains for those who love him is good. The eternal good. Friends, that does not mean that we don't groan in the meantime, because he's already told us that suffering precedes glory. But glory is assured. We know, he tells us, we know God ultimately and finally works all things together for the good, it says in verse 27. But how can we know that? How can we know that? Well, we keep reading. Verses 29 through 30. Point three, those foreknown by the Father are guaranteed to become like Jesus. I'll read 29 and 30 for us again. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called And those whom he called, he also justified. 
and those whom he justified, he also glorified. These verses tell us that there is an unbreakable link between those who are called according to his purpose that we just read about and their glorification. This is part of the, this is the good that all things are working towards. Those whom God has called are necessarily justified. Those who love God are predestined for the fullness of joy in the presence of God. We are guaranteed to become like Jesus so that he might be the firstborn of many brothers. Firstborn here in this particular verse, of course, refers to the fact that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, who now has a resurrection glorified body in that sense. He is the first fruits of the final resurrection. This is how we read about it in 1 Corinthians 15. His, re- his resurrection is first, and then ours follows. So when that he returns, all those who belong to him will be raised to new life and glorified new creation bodies. This is our hope. We will, at that point, be more fully conformed into his image. And there will be a, a definite family resemblance. Throughout this chapter, though, Paul is building a case for why Christians should have assurance and confidence, even in and through suffering, through agony, through misery. And he does this by instructing his audience to put their confidence in God's goodness and his sovereignty. Paul used a word twice in these two verses that has stirred up a lot of contention and confusion for many centuries within the church. Predestination. For some, this is not a word that brings comfort and assurance and confidence, but rather brings fear, brings disgust. But let's try to understand why Paul thought that this concept of predestination would be an encouragement to his audience. If we think that God's counsel is changeable in any way, then we're not going to be able to be confident that we will be finally saved. If God and his purposes are not a solid rock, then our assurance of salvation is going to be built on shifting sand. And when the rains fall and when the floods come, when the winds blow, our blessed assurance will be devastated. In his last instructions and encouragements to his disciples before he would be betrayed, be betrayed, Jesus in John 15 reminded his disciples that he chose them. They did not choose him. It's John chapter 15. So it's just as Jesus' disciples are about to enter into a season of confusion, a season of suffering, he tells them, You did not choose me, but I chose you. Jesus thought that his electing them, his choosing them, would be an encouragement to them. In that moment, he is encouraging them, he is reminding them of their calling and of their salvation from beginning to the end. All of grace. And it is unshakable. There is great confidence knowing that God has set his providential and covenantal love upon us. This is a difficult passage, I recognize, but we're going to look at these five actions, each in turn, from these two verses, Romans 8, 29 and 30. Each action is accomplished by God. It is a description of how he carries out 
unfailingly carries out, we might say, his saving purposes. And each of these actions is, is a verb that's linked together in an unbroken chain of God's actions. And this is why the Puritans, like William Perkins, called these verses the golden chain of salvation. So let's just look at each of these verbs, these actions of God, in turn. First, those whom he foreknew. Now, some take this to mean that God's knowledge comes from the fact that he exists outside of time. So he is able to foresee, to foreknow, to see into the future, as it were, to observe and to learn whether or not someone will put his or her faith in Jesus. And then he predestines that individual based upon that condition, upon the knowledge of their will. And so he foreknows their will. Others think that foreknew here should actually be translated into English as those he has formerly known, which is to say that these verses aren't actually talking about Christians. This is talking about Old Testament saints whom God has known and faithfully cared for throughout the generations, people in the Old Testament, people he knew from a long time ago. But I submit that neither of those options is the best interpretation. The knowledge here is a relational term. Knowledge is a relational term. It's used all over in the Old Testament. Two quick examples. Amos 3. Amos chapter 3, God says to his people, his chosen people, you only have I known from all the families of the earth. Now, obviously, God has knowledge of all the other families of the earth. So what does it mean that God knows them? Well, it's a relational term. He has known Israel as his people in a unique and special way. But it's not just used of Israel, it's also used as individuals as well. Jeremiah chapter 1 says that before God formed the prophet Jeremiah in the womb, God knew him. God knew him. And in both cases, the knowledge that God has isn't based on anything that he's foreseen. It's not based on something that he looked in the future and learned about Israel or about Jeremiah. It's a knowledge of his own will for their lives. He foreknew what he has determined for them. It is a personal, intimate, relational term, this knowledge. And it can only be properly used of a creator, of his creation. Those whom he foreknew are those whom he has from all eternity known, set his love upon, in an unchanging, personal, relational way. Remember, God is omniscient, which is to say that he is all-knowing. He doesn't need to look through time to discover anything because he has freely ordained whatsoever comes to pass. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. In other words, predestination is not based on the will of the believer, but on God's will. Predestination, then, is the next link in our chain. Those whom he predestined. The word here means to determine beforehand. The Apostle Peter uses this in the book of Acts, chapter 4. Peter's praying to God, recalling Jesus' crucifixion. He says, people gathered around Jesus to do, quote, whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. He's speaking to God the Father here in prayer. 
So we take this to mean that Jesus' crucifixion was predestined or determined beforehand by the Father to take place. It's used also of believers in Ephesians chapter 1, which we've already alluded to moments ago. We are predestined for adoption as sons, which is to say that our adoption as sons and daughters has been determined to happen by God before it happened. Please note, as we're going through the links in this chain, that each of them rests upon the one that came before it. God's predestination is based upon his having foreknown a particular people. This is the same group of people throughout each of these golden chains in, that, in this logical thought that Paul is making for us. We continue now to the next link. Those whom he called. Those whom are predestined by God are called by God. This calling refers back to verse 28. Remember those who have been called according to his purpose? This isn't just a general call to repent and believe in the gospel, like a call that you might be able to look on the caller ID of your phone and say, mm, I don't know if I want to answer this right now. That's not the kind of call we're talking about here. This is an effectual call, a call that brings the results that it calls for. Not unlike when Jesus called Lazarus to come out of the grave. As he called him to come forth, he gave them the life with which he was enabled then to come out of the grave. As he called him to come forth, he gave him the life with which he was enabled to come out of the grave. Do you understand that the call brings the ability to respond? When God calls someone inwardly to himself, he or she will necessarily respond positively to the gospel, not by compulsion, not by coercion, but he sweetly and powerfully moves the will. The one unwilling to repent and believe the gospel becomes willing to believe and repent the gospel. And we know this, we know this calling in verse 30 is effective because those whom he called, he also justifies. The next link in the chain, those whom he justified. This is the same group of people throughout. If you were called by God in this sense, then you will be justified. The Christian's justification rests upon his or her having been called by God. Just a quick reminder, justification is that legal declaration that one is counted as righteous that Paul has been explaining already so much through the book of Romans. It is the imputation of Christ's obedience to our account so that we might be reckoned as righteous as a believer. This, of course, that justification is why there is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Those whom he glorified. The Christian's glorification rests upon his or her justification. Think back to this whole passage. Just before this, he was talking about groaning and waiting for this future day of glory. One day we will no longer need to groan under the weight of the destructive weight of sin and its miseries. We will have glorified bodies like Jesus has now. So this is still very much a future thing. We are awaiting that glorification. So why is it declared to have happened in the past tense? It hasn't happened yet. Why does he say we have been glorified? This is still obviously a very much future thing. We are not yet glorified in that sense. Well, it could be that he presents this in the past tense because it's, he's, he's presenting this golden chain of events as if it was all as good as done. It's in the past tense because it's as good as accomplished. It hasn't actually played out in history yet, 
but it is as as good as done because it is according to God's will. That makes sense. But might there also be a sense in which we have already been glorified to some degree? Think with me for a minute. Earlier in Romans chapter 3, Paul wrote in 3.23 that all have sinned and thus fall short of the glory of God. I think we could accurately interpret that verse also to say that we have all sinned and thus lack the glory of God, which is to say that glory that God crowned us with at creation that we read about in Psalm 8, we've, we've lost it in and through our rebellion in Adam, so that the image of God in man that he crowned us with at creation, we have given up. It's been broken. It's been shattered through our sin. But by the work of the Holy Spirit, we are conformed into the image of his Son, This is what Paul tells us here. And the image of his son, of course, being Jesus. It's as if the glory that we were given and that we gave up is being restored in us as we grow in Christ-likeness, even in this life. 2 Corinthians 3.18, I think, says something about this. Paul there says that we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So Paul says that we are, just think about this, just even in Romans 8. Paul says that we are already adopted as sons and we anticipate with eagerness the adoption of sons. Both of these things are true, even just within Romans chapter 8. So it might be the case that our future glorification is leaking into this present evil age. I find that incredibly comforting. And encouraging, especially when we are called to mortify the sins of the flesh. That God's sure glorification of us is even now leaking into this present evil age. But in any case, our final future glorification is a sure thing. Because it rests on God's good and sovereign purposes for our lives. Christians are foreknown, predestined, called justified and glorified none of the links in that chain will be broken that's why it's referred to as the golden chain of salvation at every point in this process the initiative is taken by God who works all things together for the good of those who love him our anchor of hope must be fixed in the unchanging purposes and pleasures of God If we can't trust that God is good, if we can't trust that he's in control, the only legitimate alternative is despair. I have some dear believing friends who suffered an unspeakably tragic loss, and they have some well-meaning Christian friends who intended to bring them some comfort on the tail end of that tragedy, saying, hey, just remember that God would have done something to prevent that if he could have. Now, the heart behind a statement like that is understandable. It's an effort, at least in part, to try to protect God's goodness. But that brief sip of comfort is quickly followed by the sinking suspicion that God is either incompetent or inept. Or both. He's either not wise or he's not capable of working all things together for good. Friends, this is not the God who is there. This is not the God of the Bible. This is not the God who reveals himself in Scripture and in history. If God is not sovereign, then suffering is meaningless. Either the universe is ruled by randomness and coincidence or fate, 
or it's providentially governed by a loving creator who is all-wise, who is altogether good, and who is sovereign. There is mystery here. It is not for us to search into the minds of God to evaluate whether or not we think that his plans are actually good for us. We simply take comfort, we take assurance in knowing, just as Israel did, that God knows and God sees. Even better, God foreknows and God foresees. If these concepts of predestination are new to you, you've probably got a lot of questions. Earlier this year, we tried to lay some groundwork about this passage, and as we lean into Romans 9, when we come back to the series again in the fall, if you have questions about these things, we made some feeble attempt at a five-week equip class earlier this year to try to prepare for this. We tried to wade as deep as we can into the mysteries of the doctrines of God's providence and predestination as it relates to salvation. You can find the video recording and the handouts to that class at tbcphoenix.org slash salvation. And you may have more questions after that. Glad to talk to you. If you're not a Christian, maybe you've come here just this morning as a, a dutiful son or daughter because you love your mother and she required it of you. Don't hear this concept of predestination as anything that should keep you from repenting and believing. If you feel the weight of your sin and you know your need of a savior, reach out to him in prayer right now. Please come and talk to me after the service. Put your trust in Jesus. Ask the Holy Spirit, even right now, to stir up love that you might be one of those whom it could be rightly said, those who love God. Come talk to me. The triune God brings us into communion with himself unfailingly through setting his electing love upon us, predestining us, effectively calling us, justifying us, and glorifying us. God is sovereign. God is good. God is wise. And this gives us hope and confidence to endure suffering and persevere to the end. Christians should rest assured that God's good purposes will be accomplished in their lives. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded your helpless estate and has shed his own blood for your soul. Let's pray. Father, your ways are so beyond us in our understanding. I pray that this message of your, your goodness and your wisdom and your your love and your sovereignty would be an encouragement as Paul intended for his audience to have been encouraged. Father, may that be true of us this morning. May Satan not buffet our hearts and minds with questions about your hidden will. This is not the point. Father, help us to love and trust you even now as we stir up our hearts to love you in song. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.